Welcome to Tech Refactored, a podcast in which we explore the ever-changing relationship between technology, society, and the law. I'm your host, Gus Horwitz, the Menard Director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. This episode of Tech Refactored is originally airing on Friday, May 19th, 2023. After 10 years, this day is my last day as a member of the University of Nebraska faculty, and unfortunately with my departure, the Governance and Technology Center, home of Tech Refactored, will be winding down in the coming weeks. After three seasons and over 120 episodes, this is the last episode of Tech Refactored. So my guest today is Tech Refactored. Yo, Kyle. Hey, Gus. Hey, Alana. Hey. Welcome to Tech Refactored, episode one. This is Tech Refactored. I didn't just repeat myself. This is the name of the episode. This is Tech Refactored is the name of the first episode of this new podcast, Tech Refactored. Those were the first moments of our very first episode. And over the last three years, the format of Tech Refactored has kind of stayed the same, but it's also changed a fair bit. You might remember if you listened to that first episode or if you just listened now for the first time and heard some voices other than mine, that we were originally going to be a group podcast with my colleagues Kyle Langvart and Ilana Zaidi, who had recently joined the university as part of the Governance and Technology Center. I'm Kyle Langvard, a First Amendment scholar, mainly, so I have not thought of myself voluntarily as as a tech person. But what I found in my research with the First Amendment and the freedom of speech is I just keep getting drawn back to this subject of, of online platforms, because it seems to be where all of the action is. So Ilana, you're, you also have a bit of a First Amendment in your background, I understand. Uh, yes, I didn't necessarily intend on focusing on technology either, but came about it in a roundabout way. In my past life, I was a journalist and defended media publications. This gave me a lot of insight into the importance of privacy and a fascination with how our media presentation, our digital reputations, and long-term records impact our lives and trajectory. Over the years, Kyle and Ilana have both joined us occasionally as guests or even as guest hosts here on Tech Refactored. We've also had others from the center and university, Crystal Shepard and Justin Firestone, who have been fellows with the center. And of course, Elspeth Magilton and Lysandra Marquez, our former executive director and associate director of the center, occasionally joined us as guest hosts for the center and did a huge amount of work behind the scenes in producing the first two seasons of Tech Refactored. But as regular listeners know, over the years, I've been the primary host of Tech Refactored. I think I've hosted at this point over 100 episodes of Tech Refactored, which looking back is really quite hard to believe. Now I'm going to be turning to the main part of today's episode, which is looking back at some of our favorite episodes of these last three years. I tried to do a top 10 episodes, but I ultimately could only narrow it down to 13 because I have enjoyed being able to host so many of these discussions. But we'll take a look back and listen at several of those in a few moments. First, there's a question that many of you have asked from time to time, which is, what does Tech Refactored mean? Unsurprisingly, we said a little bit about what Tech Refactored means in that very first episode of the podcast. 
This is a thing that uh, I study in some of my work. Companies, when they are uh, working to gain traction in the marketplace, they're working to become successful, especially in these network industries, they don't always know how they're going to be used and they need to keep their investors happy. They can't invest in being perfect along every dimension. So when you're small, when you're a startup, you are going to have imperfections and you're going to have flaws. And the idea is let's wait till we know we're going to be successful and then fix mm-hmm. these problems. This is actually the name of this podcast, Tech Refactor. Refactoring, <laughs> this idea, this process of taking an existing code base and reworking it to accommodate different problems or work uh, better or run more efficiently, that's a really hard problem. The concept of refactoring really refers to the idea of taking an existing code base or set of programs, a working program or set of instructions, a system that works well, it it does what it's supposed to do, and reworking it to improve it, to add new features, to fix some bugs, to make it operate more smoothly or quickly. And it turns out that the idea of refactoring an existing working system can actually be far more complicated than just designing a whole new system from the ground up. This is something that engineers desperately try to avoid needing to do. So why do we choose this concept, this name, Refactored, as part of our podcast? Well, it really goes to the idea of the Governance and Technology Center. The idea of the Governance and Technology Center really was to refactor the academy, the university, how we learn and study and think about technology and how it's affecting and changing society, to break down the existing silos of researchers and academic disciplines and rebuild or restructure something new that's differently collaborative between the fields. This is why the Governance and Technology Center, when it was started, was a collaboration between the Colleges of Law, Business, and Engineering, and then we added in the College of Journalism and Mass Communication. Because all of those disciplines bring in different factors, different perspectives, different toolkits that we need in order to understand and really study how technology is affecting society and how we as regulators or lawmakers or just researchers trying to understand these things need to approach these complex technological and societal issues. But that's enough, at least for now, about the history of the center and the podcast. Let's turn to the main focus of today's episode, the best of Tech Refactored. To celebrate the end of Tech Refactored, we want to take a look back at some of our favorite podcasts that we've recorded over the last three years. The initial thought that we had was, let's do a top 10 list. But it turns out, with three seasons under our belt and over 120 episodes recorded, it's really hard to narrow down our favorite 10 episodes. So we have 15 episodes instead. And they're also not ranked in any particular order, because they're all our favorites. Instead, in selecting these episodes, we tried to pick a combination of both our favorites, but also episodes that demonstrate the wide range of topics and people that we have discussed and discussed with. To kick things off, this was our first episode, and we're going to hear a little bit from one of our guests at the time. She was a visiting fellow with the center, Tammy Etheridge. We use the term cultured protein or cell cultured protein because it refers to a way of growing protein cells in a a genetic scaffolding that produces something in a laboratory or a manufacturing setting that's comparable to other forms of protein that we eat, that is beef, poultry, and fish. Tammy Etheridge joins us from the Howard University School of Law. 
Her work focuses in particular on the relationship between government agencies, the legal regulation of emerging technology, and the impacts of these technologies on society. The real heart of the matter, I think, is at what point in the process do these products become meat? And part of that is, for a legal concern, a question of who is going to regulate these products. Early on in the process, in early 2018, there was a battle going on between the USDA and the FDA. They both claimed that they had sole oversight authority for cell-cultured meat. And as between the two agencies, they ultimately decided that they would share oversight authority. And in my research, I'm looking at this disagreement from a game theory perspective. And I argue that there really is no need for the USDA to be involved in the regulation of cell cultured meat, except that the USDA wants to be responsible for the labeling authority. The next episode that we're going to look at touches on a range of issues that we discussed in many different contexts over the course of the last three years. Artificial intelligence and genetics. Over this time, we've had several discussions about CRISPR and gene editing technologies. But the episode that we've chosen to highlight instead is on Google's use of artificial intelligence to solve or at least effectively solve the protein folding problem. We're talking about the protein folding problem, the challenge of determining the 3D shapes that proteins form and how Google's DeepMind system, which arguably solved the protein folding problem last year, stands to transform biology. We're joined today by Dr. Nicole Buon and Dr. Joanne Sway, researchers here at the University of Nebraska who can help us to understand what all of this means. So proteins are one of the major sort of macromolecules that make up all living organisms. In a nutshell, uh, it's a it's a shape of the protein actually determine the function, which is probably the most important thing we want to learn. These shapes can do all sorts of things that cells need to do. They can carry out chemical reactions. We call these types of proteins enzymes. They connect to each other to create the structures that make up cells. One way that uh, this improved structure function prediction moves the field forward is by helping with drug design, for instance. Uh, If you can uh, skip the step of having to crystallize the protein and get a a really high approximation of the structure uh, for something like a drug receptor, or um, if you want to design an inhibitor to something that's involved with cancer, for instance, Uh, this would decrease that discovery time because you wouldn't have to uh, solve that crystal structure. So that's one, one way I think maybe more in medicine that it might be very helpful. Another of our favorite topics over the years has been energy and energy related technologies from how we produce energy to energy markets and the development of green and non-polluting technologies. Over the years, we've discussed, for instance, electrification of vehicles, small modular nuclear reactors, and one of the discussions that we had was with Lynn Kiesling about the Texas energy grid failure from a couple winters ago. This episode was one of the TRDT, or just-in-time episodes that we recorded, that was responding to a current event in the news. With me today is Lynn Kiesling, a visiting professor in the Department of Engineering and Public Policy at Carnegie Mellon University and director of the Institute for Regulatory Law and Economics. Among other areas of expertise, she is a go-to expert on the energy sector. 
Lynn, can you tell us a, just a little ex explanation of uh, what went on with the electric grid uh, in Texas with this storm? It is uh, probably one of the most costly uh, events to happen in Texas, both costly financially, but in terms of, as you said, uh, lives lost, um, damage to not just the electric grid, but also to water treatment facilities and, you know, folks having to boil water um, even now a week later. Uh, what happened last weekend was you started to have very cold, uh, cold weather and it persisted. In the course of, of the power outages playing out, the story of it reveals just how interconnected and interdependent the different parts of the energy system are. The cold temperatures were actually causing problems all the way back to the natural gas wellhead. So when they extract the gas, uh, when you extract natural gas from the ground as methane, it comes out with a bunch of other stuff. And the main thing that it comes out of the ground with is water. And at single digit temperatures, the water that it's coming out of the ground with is going to freeze pretty quickly. And so right from the beginning of the fuel supply chain, you have uh, unprecedented weather event problems. So you have freezing of the fuel at the wellhead, freezing of the water with the, with the methane at the wellhead. And then when you get to power plants, there were some mechanical devices that froze because the power plants are not weatherized to single digit temperatures, right? They're weatherized to a hundred degree summer humid peaks. And, uh, and so that's, that's a real part of the challenge is, is that um, this was a, a sustained period of low temperatures in a place that is not accustomed to them and in an infrastructure system that isn't engineered to handle them. Another episode that we did relating to energy was a discussion from this past year with James Coleman about the strategic energy reserves. So the Strategic Petroleum Reserve was established in the 70s and filled throughout the 80s and 90s. And it's effectively just a series of salt caverns near the Gulf Coast at four sites in Texas and Louisiana near the Gulf Coast that are full of oil. And they have, they store a lot of oil. So they store can store about 700 million barrels of oil, which is roughly enough to get us through just over a month of U.S. oil usage. I think it's worth emphasizing how fragile that system is in a certain way. Because, you know, if you think about oil markets, in 2021, for the entire year, the whole world was consuming 100 million barrels per day of oil. The whole world was only producing 98 million barrels per day of oil. So that means we were 2 million barrels per day of oil short every day of 2021. The next several episodes that we highlight look at the relationship between technology and society. Unsurprisingly, this covers a wide range of issues, and we explore these issues in many different contexts over the years, from social media to privacy to platform economics to how Congress is trying to regulate various technologies. We talked about these episodes quite a bit. We've chosen four episodes as examples to highlight today. The first is our discussion with author Brian Christian about his book, The Alignment Problem. So the alignment problem is an idea that goes back to the famous MIT cyberneticist Norbert Wiener. 
um, who already back in 1960 was having these very prescient concerns about our relationship to technology. And he has a famous quote that says, if we use to achieve our purposes a mechanical agency with whose operation we cannot interfere once we've set it going, then we had better be quite certain that the purpose we put into the machine is the thing that we truly desire. And that is the essence of what has come to be known as the alignment problem. And this is an idea specific to the field of machine learning, namely software systems that are trained implicitly by examples rather than being explicitly programmed. The question is, do these systems really learn the things we think they're learning? And are they going to behave in the way that we expect? And will they do what we want? And so that has come to be known as the alignment problem. Are their objectives aligned with our intentions? The next of the episodes that we're highlighting under this heading of technology in society is our discussion with University of Pennsylvania professor Anita Allen and her work on the racial dynamics and aspects of privacy. One of my first privacy articles was something called How Privacy Got Its Gender. And I look very closely at the Warren and Brandeis article from the point of view of gender, not race yet, but of gender. And it struck me that that they trade upon the idea that women are delicate flowers, that they need privacy from having their photographs used without their consent. They need privacy for having their babies in their homes without strange people being around. And they trade on that idea to help to support their, their, their theory. But yet there's really nothing in the article that's for the advancement of women, as, as there is nothing in that article for the advancement of African-Americans mm-hmm. recently freed from slavery or Native Americans who were still being fought in the Great West. The West closed in 1890, officially the same year as Warren and Brandeis wrote that article. But there were still uh, uh, disputes and and, and dangers between uh, white people and and, and Indians and uh, uh, others out West. So I like to tell a different origin story of the right to privacy than the one that most people tell. So for me, American privacy law does not begin with the Warren and Brandeis article. It begins uh, several decades earlier with a case called State versus Man, North Carolina case uh, uh, written by um, opinion written by Judge Ruffin, who owned slaves. But this is a case in which a woman uh, who was enslaved named Lydia was shot by the man who um, hired her out from her owner. And the man who shot her shot her because she was trying to escape one of his beatings. Interestingly, the white community rallied around the enslaved woman and they prosecuted, had him prosecuted for, for assault and battery. But he appealed. And on appeal, Judge Ruffin said that, oh, because of the privacy of the master-slave relationship, we can't interfere with this man. And so we can't uphold this conviction. It would undermine the, the whole institution of slavery upon which you know our, we are all dependent and implicated. So he used the privacy concept as a legal concept to stand in the way of actually allowing punishment of somebody who committed a heinous uh, crime against an enslaved person. And that same idea that, that privacy protects the home, the family, uh, our businesses, our master-servant relationships, our master-slave relationships, came up in a case a couple of decades later called State versus Rhodes, in which a man was charged with beating his wife, but then that was uh, overturned on grounds of the privacy of the family. So despite the history I just described, I think privacy is indeed a positive value that has positive functions in our society. And despite its roots in the protection of slavery and wife beating and white male upper-class privilege, We all need a right to privacy that is based on our equal uh, dignity, our equal freedom. And that's what I'm in favor of. That's what my work is mostly about. 
The next of the episodes that we highlight under this heading of technology and society isn't necessarily about technology and society so much as technology and humans. This is our discussion with professor and author Joshua Fairfield about his books on runaway technology, can the law keep up, and owned property, privacy, and the new digital serfdom. Beyond these topics in our discussion with Josh, we get into the nature of human cognition and the relationship between human cognition and technology. My favorite definition of technology is uh, by a Polish science fiction author, Stanislaw Lem. And what he said is technology is the domain of problems and their solutions. That really resonated with me because I began to notice something, and that's actually what this new book is all about. I began to notice something a while back, which is that we often use social technology to handle the same problems that we use hard technology for. And the two often have a kind of a handoff. So you and I, for example, are in right now, we're looking at each other over Zoom and we're recording this. But we could convey information like this in a classroom. The social technology of a classroom has certain features. Everybody's looking at one speaker. One speaker is conveying information to many people. We can replace that with one person speaking on a podcast and being listened to by what we hope is many people. We've we've swapped the social technology of the classroom for the hard tech of the podcast. Or you could think about you know the mail carrier and email. Or you could think about um, you could think about money transfer networks that were done through informal connections versus banking systems. Um, the, the point is that we sometimes do things socially. We sometimes do things technologically. And when I started looking at it through the lens of, of Stanislaw Lem's definition, I realized that law is technology, that it's a problem set. It's the domain of problems, specifically the problem of how do we live together without violence and their solutions. And we, in fact, evolve our social technology. We evolve our law, just like you see evolutions of hard technology. And that was the basis for me to begin to say that that things like the idea that law always lags technology is necessarily nonsense. Because it's just, it's like saying technology lags technology. The real question is, where do we put our efforts? Like, where do we try to develop things? That, that's what determines what stays ahead of what. And the last of the episodes that we highlight under this heading is our discussion with Jess Myers, in which we discuss her work on platforms in Section 230, but also the realities of being an advocate or a lawyer working in these fields and the opportunities for students to find a foothold for a career in these fields. And then you have your engineers. The last thing you want is your lawyers and your government affairs folks making promises to the government that are technologically infeasible for the business. So the engineers, they operate by having a deep and robust understanding of the product's technical hard lines. Not to mention, the engineers are usually responsible for developing the moderation tools themselves if your company is relying on in-house tooling. I remember one of my favorite experiences at Google when I was in the trust and safety department was working with some of the Google engineers that were assigned to my workspace products. So I, I primarily was a legal policy specialist for Google Workspace. That's going to be your products like Google Drive, Google Meet, email, calendar, etc. And so I would often every week, I would have a meeting with our engineering teams that were responsible for these products. And I would find myself getting into tech policy debates with the engineers. And I always thought that was, I always walked away either learning something new or with a different perspective. Because again, these engineers, they have been so 
ingrained into the product and the core functionality of the product that they also understand or they begin to understand how today's policy and political environment affect and impact the work that they are currently doing. Technology doesn't just happen. There are researchers developing new technologies. There are entrepreneurs working to commercialize those technologies and get them into the economy. And there are regulators and policymakers trying to figure out the rules to govern how these technologies will work in that economy. The next three episodes that we highlight touch on each of these three different aspects of the technology life cycle and the importance of technology in solving some of society's most pressing challenges. The first episode that we highlight is the one in which we looked at a new technology being developed by researchers at Texas A&M that allows for 3D printing of new structures, that is buildings, domiciles, dwellings, places for people to live, using soils that are native to the construction site. Today, we're talking about new developments in 3D printing technology that could revolutionize the cost and sustainability of affordable housing across the globe, especially in the developing world. The key to these developments is the use of local soils as base materials in the printing process. Here to talk to us about his work helping to develop these new 3D printing techniques is Dr. Sarbajit Banerjee, Professor of Chemistry and Material Science and Engineering at Texas A&M University. There are challenges to just the use of soil as a construction material, and then there's additional challenges to 3D printing it. So uh, to, to generate, to use soil as a, as a construction material, it's, it's a question of how do you, so soil's got this diverse range of different, different materials in it. It's got different, different sorts of clay, uh, organic matter. How do you get this stuff to form a cohesive matrix? So we've got a team here of uh, architects, um, civil engineers and chemists and material scientists looking to see if we could come up with a uh, toolkit of um, a toolkit of chemistries that so that we could we could harvest local soils no matter where you are in the world and and build from that and uh, and 3d print architectures from that so how do you uh, how do you sort of uh, solidify um, the local soils into into something that is a 3D printable formulation. The next of the episodes that we highlight is the discussion that we had with Kent Earlweller, a Nebraska native who for the last several years has been working to build and run a wireless ISP that provides internet access to people across the state where they might not otherwise have access to the internet. And the challenges that he's faced with technology, economics, and regulation in his efforts to provide this vital service. Before starting Prairie Hills Wireless, uh, we had a I had a small computer repair company that I did off the side after my after I was done working my day job, and uh, I kept hearing um, complaints from the community that they needed another internet option that was a lower cost, uh, faster solution than what they were getting currently. So that's what made us decide to start our own business. What we did was we sold one of our cars to get it started. Um, we started with about $19,000 and that bought our first access points. We put up about five towers in Ravana and we quickly gained about 300 customers in the first nine months of business. And at about month three, we sold our house uh, to get some more money flowing in. We serve about 2000 customers currently. We're covering um, Kearney, Amherst, Miller, Riverdale, Pleasanton, Litchfield, Hazard, Ravana, 
Rockville, Loop City, Bullis, Caro, Danabrog, Farwell, and Shelton. For the consumer, fixed wireless can do what is required for the typical home and business today. From here, our discussion turned to RDOF, or the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund, and the CARES Act, both federal subsidy programs that provide funding to internet service providers to help them offer internet access to rural internet users, and how these programs had affected Kent Erlwiller's business in particular. So we we actually looked into doing RDOF, and we use a highly recommended lawyer in D.C., and uh, what he recommended to us is actually that we do not participate in it. And and the reason why is because it was kind of written for larger companies. Uh, we would had we would have had to have done mountains of paperwork to go through with it. And he said that we would have to basically have about two hundred thousand dollars sitting in the bank in order to do the process of everything that is involved with it. So we didn't do it. Uh, we actually contested some of the areas that were eligible in our coverage area. And we were one of the very few ISPs that won that contest. I, I watched the webinar on the CARES Act. And immediately I started looking at the FCC map so I could kind of get an idea of if there's any of this money that I can apply for uh, because it was written a lot looser than RDOF was. So I knew that I might actually have a chance of trying to do something with it. Um, so I kind of looked at it and was like, well, the only area is really available is north of us. And that's going to be quite a bit of work. So I have to build towers. And I don't, with the pandemic going on, I didn't know if I was going to get supplies. So I didn't do, I didn't do it. I didn't participate in it. Um, get a text message from my mother-in-law that, uh, what was on the front page of the newspaper in September and a fiber company got over $2 million worth of CARES Act money for the same area that we contested for. Obviously someone didn't do their homework <laughs> or something, something happened there. I'm not really sure what exactly, but um, for a small company like us, it's really going to hurt us. And I'm sure I'm not the only one that it's happened to. I'm sure it's happened to others, um, but we're, we're a small company and we've used all of our own money that we make and put it right back into our network. It's very frustrating for me, not just because it's my, my business that I'm losing part of. Um, it's more so frustrating for me as a taxpayer because there is a lot of people, and this is the reason why we started our company. We started our company to help the communities that didn't have good options for internet access. And there are a lot of areas in our county or surrounding counties that have little to nothing for internet options. And that money could have been used to put whatever, fiber, fixed wireless, whatever, to get those people better access. The final episode that we highlight under this heading is our discussion with Alex Stapp, the founder of the Institute for Progress, a DC-based think tank, about the role of policy in enabling innovation. There's much more to DC policy influence than just doing analysis, doing better analysis and having the proper research in place. There's many more steps to actually implementing those, those ideal policies or making improvements or reforms. But yeah, I would say I work in public policy. We really see ourselves as part of this emerging community of progress-oriented thinkers. On the center left, often it's called supply-side liberalism or supply-side progressivism. 
on the center right, this view like state capacity libertarianism. So you know, recognize the importance of free markets, but the also that the government can do big things and is, has an important role to fill in our economy. And people are wondering, like, can we build things anymore? It seems like mega projects are more expensive than they ever have been. They're often bogged down in environmental reviews that are, that are often not about substantive environmental concerns, but they're being weaponized by NIMBYs who don't want building in their backyard. A lot of people on both center left and center right sense that this is a problem. And we want, if we want to achieve big things and make more progress, we need to have different solutions. And I think the key probably is that on the state capacity libertarian side, they would mostly just talk about what are the regulatory barriers stopping all this progress from happening? How are, you know, land use and zoning laws, um, regulations in the healthcare sector. There's tons of regulations that if we just rolled those back, the market could take care of it. In the more progressive liberal side of things, they would agree with those, but they would put the emphasis more on, well, there are all these market failures. If we just you know, gave the market free reign, they would pollute a lot more. And the things they would build or emphasize wouldn't be socially beneficial. We'd just get more like ad tech or something would probably be a kind of concern they would have. I think not totally unfairly. I started this look back at some of our favorite episodes by saying that these are all equally favorite. It turns out that wasn't entirely true. The last four episodes I'm looking at are four of my truly favorite episodes that we recorded. The category I put these episodes into is just labeled fun. The first of these four episodes that I highlight is one of our discussions with Nebraska professor Ash Eliza Smith about her project on flyover fictions. I wanted to sit down with scientists, engineers, researchers across the campus and ask them, I call them speculative interviews, but really kind of pushing uh, the boundaries of their research, asking what if questions and, and starting to think about what if research on the campus at UNL across the arts and sciences was formed speculatively. This was in part because I thought, could we create these new kinds of configurations for innovation and imagination to think both locally, but also globally? And also just asking questions like, could engineers and scientists ask these what if questions, so to speak? Asking what if questions and just pushing a little bit into the future helps us think about um, what could be, what's possible and really start to put our brains together in a creative and innovative way about how we can shape the future, which is shaping the present. An example of that is, I think Santosh and I, when we sat down, started talking about, are there any kind of science fiction films that have ever influenced your research or your kinds of questions that you're asking in the laboratory? And and that was really fun because uh, a lot of uh, the saying goes, sometimes science influences science fiction, and sometimes science fiction influences the science, right? And so these are kinds of things that uh, make me really excited about how story can shape reality. The next of these fun episodes that we highlight is my discussion from this past spring with Eric Alston from the University of Colorado on the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. This was an impromptu discussion that I recorded with Eric while we were at a conference together this past spring and definitely falls into the category of our TRDT just-in-time episodes about current events. You touched on another important point vis-a-vis -vis government resolution of a failed bank in this particular instance, which is to say the uninsured deposits 
apparently were insured by the federal government because everyone, including depositors like Peter Thiel, who had 50 million of his own personal funds at Silicon Valley Bank, will apparently get all or nearly all of their money back, which is a rather unprecedented step in terms of our resolution of failed banks. And it's lurking there right in the nominal term, uninsured deposits, So depending on who you ask, this is either a spectacular failure of the regulators or it's due to a a non-trivial weakening in the regulatory supervision to which large but not super large banks were subject to. And so effectively, during the Trump administration, the extent to which banks the size of Silicon Valley Bank were subject to regulatory examination and supervision and stress tests there too was somewhat weakened. Mm -hmm. And so if you're pro-regulation, there is the culprit. We weakened the regulatory supervision and suddenly this bank went under. On the other hand, though, it's not as if they were not subject to any regulatory supervision whatsoever, such that I do see some measure of culpability, especially given that the interest rate increases are emanating from the government that's meant to be regulating these banks' practices. Our penultimate episode to highlight was the first episode of season two and was one of my absolute favorites, not least because it brought me back to my childhood and the Oregon Trail. I grew up playing this game. It's one of the things I remember from, you know, the elementary school computer classes back in the day when they had to like teach us how to use computers. I think it's, it's just really incredible. Like what an indelible mark this game has kind of left on an entire generation. Yeah. I can still make uh, dying of dysentery jokes in my classes when I'm teaching and my students know what it, what I'm talking about, so it's a it's a cultural reference that spans generations too. I think the biggest issue with the old school original version of it is that we're really not depicted or represented at all. I think there's maybe like one scene at one of the forts where one of your options is, you know, when you can pick the options and it's like talk to somebody. I feel like there's like one instance where that person is native. I don't think I noticed it as much um, when I was in like second, third and fourth grade playing the game, Um, you know, because there is so little native presence in the game and it's so unlike what I knew my relatives to be. It wasn't until I was in high school and then really in college when I started thinking about all of the misrepresentations that I had seen um, seen in my life building up to that point that made me want to be a historian um, that I really remembered and looked back on how uh, how bad that representation actually was. And I think that erasure itself is a really big part of the game and why we were brought on to help make it a more realistic depiction. And can you tell us a little bit about uh, how and why you were approached by the developers of uh, the Oregon Trail to make a more accurate reboot of the game? 
So I think they were aware of the problems with the original game and the criticisms of the original game. And they wanted to do a better job of including indigenous perspectives in the new version that they were making. Um, and they, um, they wanted to not just like, stick native people in the game, um, but actually have a meaningful representation of various native perspectives. And so they reached out to, um, to historians like Katie and myself to get involved in um, giving feedback and consulting on the game. And our final episode to highlight is my recent discussion with Kathy Kleiman on the six women who were the original programmers of the ENIAC computer and, it turns out, of all modern computers. There are two famous women in computing that we all know, Lady Ada Lovelace and then Captain Lady Rear Admiral Grace Hopper in the U.S. Navy. Um, but uh, Ada Lovelace was in England in the 19th century and Grace Hopper was in the 20th century. And that's about one woman a century being successful mm -hmm. in computing, which did not seem particularly good. And so I went looking for other women. I took a course in American women's history, and I went looking for American women in the history of computing. I remember going through all the secondary sources, Encyclopedia of Computer Science and other things, looking for women's names, frankly. And other than Ada Lovelace and Grace Hopper, they just weren't there. But also what was interesting was there was a gap. The history of early computing had been written as a history of hardware. Mm -hmm. And so the names of the engineers were there but not the names of the programmers. And of course, there must somebody must have been programming these things. Women seemed to be very, very involved in software, and that history seemed to be undocumented. The Army, the Ballistics Research Lab, which was studying ballistics trajectories in Aberdeen Proving Ground, which is rural Maryland, realized they needed a lot of people, a lot of women to calculate these trajectories. Rural Maryland was not where they were going to find them, so they relocated up to Philadelphia, which has, you know, just a plethora of schools. So ultimately, there were 100 women working at the University of Pennsylvania on these ballistics trajectories. Their title, just as it was in Hidden Figures, was Computers, capital C. A computer was a person long before it was a machine. And so they were computing ballistics trajectories. And during World War II, the Army paid for engineers at the Moore School to build the world's first general-purpose, all-electronic, programmable computer. After two years, the machine is built. They've done a lot to requisition and get the supplies for it. And then they go back to the contract. Exactly right. And uh, John and Press talk to Herman Goldstein and say, we need people who will figure out how to program this monster. And it is a monster. How to program it for the ballistics trajectory. And Lieutenant Herman Goldstein goes and finds and asks six of his best computers. If you've met World War II veterans, now increasingly rare, but, mm -hmm. you know, over time, they don't tell you what they did. I mean, you really have to know somebody well for them to tell you what they did on D-Day or for them to tell you the story of, you know, the Pacific battles that they fought in. They're not going to tell you they have, you know, awards and honors from their work. This is a very modest group. And so these women actually were extraordinary. They did not go home after the war. They continued to work with the Army. They continued to work and program ENIAC. Um, they became the teachers of the next generation of ENIAC programmers. And some of them went on to create the programming languages and programming structures, the foundations of, of programming that we know today because they wanted 
computing to be easier and more accessible. Their brilliance is part of why we're all using computers today. Collectively, these 15 episodes give a pretty good overview of the wide range of topics that we've discussed and researchers and other individuals that we've had conversations with over the last three years recording this episode. Looking back, it's been quite a voyage, perhaps not quite as harrowing as the Oregon Trail was, but it's been a lot of fun and I've had the opportunity to learn quite a bit. This podcast has always been a production of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. Indeed, when the center was started, podcasting isn't something that we had anticipated doing at all. But then a pandemic happened and all the events that we had been planning to do kind of didn't happen. So we turned to podcasting as a bit of a stopgap or an experiment. And boy, oh boy, am I glad that we did that. But the Governance and Technology Center did many other things in addition to the Tech Refactored podcast, and I want to take a moment to look back at those as well and highlight some of our accomplishments. Over the last three years, the center has hosted more than two dozen speakers here at the university, some of those remote, but many in person. The center's core faculty, myself, Kyle Langvart, Ilana Zaidi, Crystal Shepard, Justin Firestone, Malin Fiddler, we have collectively published dozens of papers and articles, presented our research around the world, testified before Congress, and consulted with the White House and other federal agencies. We've appeared on television as experts, and we've been quoted on radio and in newspapers, ranging from local news here in Lincoln and across Nebraska and the Midwest, to national outlets like the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and the New York Times. Looking beyond our core faculty, We've worked with more than 30 faculty from across the university, and we've hosted another 20 or so faculty from across the country as visiting fellows. And we've hosted more than 40 students as student fellows. That student experience has always been the heart of what we do here. One of the things of which I am most proud is that the center developed a new curriculum to introduce students from across the university to technology policy the heart of which was teaching engineering students about business and legal concepts, business students about legal and engineering concepts, and law students about business and engineering concepts, and all of these concepts to any students across the university who are interested. As I leave the university, my greatest sadness is that I'll no longer be able to work with Nebraska students to explore with them as this new discipline forms at the intersection of law, technology, and society. It really is where the future is, and, at least as far as I'm concerned, it's where all of the fun stuff going on at most universities nowadays can be found. Of course, none of this would have been possible without the help and support of many people. Several organizations notably provided substantial public support for the center, including the Menards family, the Charles Koch Foundation, and the John and James L. Knight Foundation. And several individuals have played important roles at the center over the years. Elsbeth Magilton was our stalwart executive director and Tech Refactored's executive producer for two years, working alongside Lysandra Marquez, our associate director and producer. Adina Choate has helped us to keep the lights on and the trains running, and this past year, Maris Stebbing helped with all things logistical at the center, while James Fleegey seriously upped our game when he joined us as our new executive producer. There's one question that you may have to which I won't provide much of an answer. What's next for me? The best answer is, you can find out on Google. But I'll be continuing to develop opportunities for students at the intersection of law and engineering, doing the thing that I came to this university to do, and the thing that I love most. Sadly, that revolution won't be podcasted.
at least yet. I expect that longtime listeners, if you've been with us since the beginning, will remember that I used to sign off every episode with, I'll admit, a pretty bad pun. The secret of all of those sign-offs is they were spontaneous, thought up on the spur of the moment. We made some changes to the podcast format this last season, and it didn't make sense to continue with that. But for old time's sake, I thought that we could take a look back, or at least a listen back, to those old sign-offs. Till next time. Until next time, don't forget, we're tracking your eye movements. Until next time, splice you later. Until next time, keep on buying. Nothing in this episode should be taken as market advice. Until next time, keep on swimming. Until next time, I'll be on mute. Till next time, keep closing that divide. Until next time, keep on asking, what if? Until next time, it's time to blast off. Until next time, the metrics are coming from inside the house. It's been great having you here for this discussion of cell-cultured protein. Let's eat. Until next time, you can trust in me. Until next time, see you on Insta. Until next time, no, Mr. Robocaller, I expect you to die. Until next time, gold farming ain't cool. Until next time, keep on innovating. Until next time, that's no moon. Until next time, keep on lobbying. Until next time, keep that oil flowing. Until next time, keep thinking about those risks. Until next time, keep on tweeting. Until next time, a camp to believe it's not broadband. Until next time, keep on weaving. Until next time, keep speaking freely. Until next time, straighten up and speak right. Until next time, happy bidding at the Spectrum auction. Until next time, obey Ohm's law. Until next time, you have my accelerated approval. Until next time, I'll keep speculating about next time. Until next time, keep your machines learning. Until next time, keep digging into those maps. Until next time, keep them toilets flushing. Until next time, cry havoc and let loose the bits of broadband. Until next time, wherever you're going, progress will help you get there. Until next time, keep thinking about how your institution encourages innovation. Until next time, keep your planetary boundary layer well-defined. Until next time, I'll be here to ensure your security is cyber. Until next time, I'll see you on social. Until next time, keep asking those hard questions. Until next time, drive safely. Until next time, I'll be here creating. Until next time, I'll be here and there and everywhere, it's quantum. Until next time, keep on tweeting. Until next time, keep asking yourself, what would add a lovely stew? Until next time, keep those considerations of technology broad. Until next time, keep those communications secure. Until next time, keep those fences invisible. Until next time, keep on digging. Until next time, keep folding those proteins. Until next time, keep those phasers on awesome. Until next time, keep your methane production clean. Until next time, keep on reporting. Until next time, keep your nozzles clean. Until next time, seriously, no dogs were injured in the making of this episode. Until next time, keep looking forward to understand the past. I've been your host, Gus Hurwitz, formerly a professor of law and the Menards Director of the Governance and Technology Center at the University of Nebraska. Tech Refactored is part of the Menards programming series hosted by the Governance and Technology Center at the University of Nebraska. Till next time, there is never enough time. Thank you for having spent some of your time with Tech Refactored and with me. Mm-hmm.